Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today I interviewed Daniel Thorson, who is the host of the Emerge Podcast and also is a resident of the Monastic Academy in Vermont. I recorded this at a the family home in on Fisher's Island out in New York this summer. And I was introduced to Daniel by a former guest, Vinay Gupta. And it seems to be we are at the precipice of a change in civilization. Something's going to happen, it feels like. Something big's going to happen. Some shift is, is seems like it's about to happen. And I'd say that this recording here is our attempt to figure out what that is. See, as human beings, it's we are constantly running an experiment to figure out what the hell we're doing here. What is our purpose? What is our meaning? And people have been trying to figure out this out for a long time. And then, you know, you have globalization that happened in the 17, 1800s. Uh, and then with that globalization, scientific method, and, 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 you know, you have Jung, you have Nietzsche, you have all these deep thinkers who are trying to figure out what the hell is going on. And so the beauty, beautiful part of that is that that's still going on. You are a part of this and you can contribute. It does help if you start to actually produce rather than just consume. And we're all a part of this figuring out essentially what the hell we're doing here and what is going on. What does it mean to live? These are all open questions and they're probably not going to get answered for a while. And then we have these things, this technology that comes in and changes everything and then culture adapts. And then it's this back and forth interplay between these two things. And, you know, what is going on? I don't know. Do you know? And, and, and we have to figure out what it is we're doing and we have to come to conclusions knowing that those conclusions are going to be wrong, but then acting in the world regardless of whether they might be wrong because that's what we believe but then not getting too tied up into our beliefs and thinking that our beliefs are accurate representations of reality. So this is my invitation to join me and Daniel uh, in thinking through these these questions uh, about where we're headed, what's the purpose here, what's going on. And I invite you to find me on Twitter, at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I, uh, and contribute to the conversation. I ask a lot of questions on Twitter. I try to answer, or I'm sorry, I try to reply to a lot of the answers as well. Um, I'm not always the best at that, but I'm doing my best. Uh, so find me on Twitter at Stuart Alsop III, and I'd love to engage with you there. Ask me questions, answer my questions. Um, find Daniel as well, Daniel Thorson on on Twitter, and just kind of join us in this conversation about what it exactly are we doing here and where are we headed. Uh, and also, if you enjoy this episode, please find us on iTunes by searching for Crazy Wisdom and leaving us a review. You can also find us on Spotify, Stitcher, all the major podcast forms. Have a great day. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom podcast. Uh, my guest here is Daniel Thorson. Uh, he is currently a, the host of the Emerge podcast and at the Monastic Academy. Um, and I'm really excited to have you on today. Hey, yeah, great to be here. Thanks, Stuart. Sure. Uh, so for our listeners, what is the Emerge Podcast and what is Monastic Academy? Sure, yeah. Well, so the Emerge Podcast actually uh, started the last tour of duty I did at the Monastic Academy. Um, so I lived at the Monastic Academy from 2014 to 2016. And while I was living there, you know, I, I loved the training, I loved the community, but I felt kind of deprived when it came to intellectual discourse and, and kind of philosophical inquiry, which, you know, I was a philosophy major in college and have an abiding interest in the more theoretical and philosophical aspects of both contemplative practice, but also just more generally, um, you know, about life. And so I realized that a podcast, as I'm sure you've realized, is just a great kind of life hack to have an excuse to reach out to really interesting people and engage them in conversation. So it kind of just started uh, really like I, I've, I've listened to podcasts for almost 10 years. It's been one of the major ways that I've you know learned. And there were certain conversations that I wanted to hear 
that I kept waiting for people to have. And then mm -hmm. at a certain point, I just realized that like, oh, maybe I'm, I'm the one who's going to have those conversations. And so I, I, I started having them. And one thing has led to another. Uh, it's become, you know, a really beautiful part of my life. And, uh, you know, a lot of people uh, have reflected that it's an important part of theirs, you know, that they learn a lot from the conversations. And I think what most uh, is most beautiful to me is that they feel a sense of like, belonging in this larger inquiry into what exactly are we going to do at this point in the trajectory of the world system where so much is on the line, it looks like we're headed to collapse. And like, how do we as individuals orient in that complexity and potential chaos? Uh, and so that's mm. been, that's really what the podcast is about. And there's like, as you might imagine with a question that big, just like lots of different streams of inquiry from, uh, you know, contemplative practice to decentralized autonomous organizations and cryptocurrencies uh, to uh, different organizational structures like teal organizations, different political movements or ways of organizing politics, different ways of thinking about like human agency and human potential. Uh, there's a lot that's involved with that inquiry. Um, I know that you had Vinay Gupta on this podcast. And so like talking to him about you know, what, what does collapse look like? How can we understand this possibility, this idea of collapse? And how do we kind of really um, uh, sink our teeth into that potential in a way that uh, is, is real, but not totally, uh, or at least uh, is usefully disorienting, you know? Um, and mm. Yeah, so that's that's what I, I guess I'd say right now at this moment about Emerge. And then the Monastic Academy is um, yeah, I, I would say it's it's a, a, an experiment in discovering what monasticism is or needs to become for our contemporary culture. Right throughout all of human history, uh, there has been this thing called uh, a monastery or monasteries, and they've played really important functions uh, within culture. You know, they've been places where people go to become literate. They perform certain social functions that are now often performed by governments. They've been places where uh, wisdom and technique have been preserved while the social structure around the monasteries are collapsing. Uh, and, and so there have been many different roles that monasteries have played. And, and there's a question now, like, what what is the role now? We think that there is a role. Um, and I could, could talk more about what I believe that to be, but it's it's kind of an inquiry. It's like, what what is this? What does it mean to create a modern monastery? Uh, and you know, what, what, yeah, what, what, what is, what's there in that, in that process and that potential. Uh, and so I, I live there and practice there and work there, um, here in, you know, uh, Northern Vermont. And, uh, yeah, I'm happy to talk more about that or share anything you like about it. So it's really interesting. We could go a lot of different ways from that. The most interesting for me personally is sharing our common experiences about starting a podcast in that inquiry, uh, sharing the inquiry um, of, of my own inquiry. And like when, when I can, one of the most, I've had some of the most profound experiences uh, on this podcast, interviewing people, actually probably not interviewing is not the right word, having a conversation with people. Mm. Uh, and in a way that is profoundly more is profoundly more affecting than a solo meditation practice, which I, you know, I, I, I went into retreat for a period of about three years, I was doing 10 day meditation retreats and, mm. um, and, you know, having profound experiences as well. It's not like those weren't profound and, and moving and affecting. Um, but like in this, in this podcast, I've had way, way more like just like sharp moments of like, uh, um, nonlinear expansion almost. Mm. And, uh, and there seems to be something about the relationship human beings. And, you know, I, I see a human being as basically a channel. It can also be a source in some ways, but, mm. but you know, I, I, like I'm a channel for, for things. My, my brain hooks into different uh, pathways and then something comes out and it goes out to somebody else. And then, and mm. so other people are also channels. And so some people have, you know, done a lot of this. And so there is, 
there's something unique about the human to human interaction that conversation does what, okay, here, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you what, what is the role of conversation in inquiry and in human relating and expansion of knowledge? Yeah, that's a beautiful question. Um, and where my mind is going initially is something like, uh, you know, it's easy or when I tell people about the monastic Academy, I think often they, imagine that it, all what we do here is we meditate and we do meditate. We meditate a lot. Uh, but I think it's actually more interesting to reflect on the kind of ecology of practices that we have here, uh, each of which feed into each other in really fascinating ways. So we, we do meditate. We also, um, do a practice called circling, which is a kind of like mindful conversation, a kind of relational meditation, uh, we also do uh, work with trauma healing. We have a particular practice of trauma healing using something called the bioemotive framework. Um, and then for me personally, uh, I also, on top of those practices, do these podcast conversations. And there's a way in which the inquiry of my meditation feeds the inquiry on my podcast. And there's a way that the inquiry in the podcast feeds my meditation such that there's a kind of, um, there's a, there's a kind of beautiful interaction there. Uh, I, I don't know that I can put it into words, but it's almost like, um, Hmm. I discover myself through speaking with another and I lose myself on the cushion. And there's something in that movement, that kind of oscillation that, yeah, like you say, it's, there's, uh, the, the, there's insights to be found in both places and, and you never know where, where it's going to be more profound. It might seem on the face of it, like meditation would be more profound, but I don't, that hasn't been my experience, but I'd love to, and, I'd love to hear you reflect on, on this question too. It's uh, like, what, what, what have been your experiences and how do you see the, the role of these kinds of conversations? Yeah, as you said that it comes up that it's also stage dependent, it seems like. So for, you know, like three years ago when I originally set out on that kind of journey, I that was what I needed mm. at that time to quiet my mind in order to then find whatever I'm finding now. Totally. Um, and that probably this wouldn't have been good. But I wonder about that framing as well, whether that's true. Um, hmm. So... Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's true too. Like there are seasons to this stuff. Like sometimes I feel the urge to just cease the conversations on the podcast. Like I've thought about just like putting it on pause for a while, uh, and just spending more time meditating. Um, and maybe there's something to that. Yeah. What do you think about this relationship between technique practice and informal kind of like, uh, informal being almost like, so what is, what is the relationship to becoming versus just being? What is the relationship to becoming versus I can, just being? Yeah, can you expand that a little bit more? I I'm can. Sure I get it. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, so becoming, acting, podcasts. We we are in relationship to others. We uh, have a conversation. We run. We 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 do all the things. We administrate. We manage. We do all these things. Um, being, just sitting in meditation. And oftentimes we're becoming in meditation as well because our mind is racing and trying to mm. find the next thing to do or everything like that. But just this sense of like being and not doing anything and not, not trying to become anything, but just sitting there in that, in that transcendent kind mm. of just like universe. Um, yeah. So how, huh. what is the relationship between these two for you? Yeah. So I, I would love to like play a little bit in inquiry with you around this. Like, uh, so for me, um, I don't really use that dichotomy uh, in my meditation practice or in conversations. I, that doesn't really like land with me. Like I don't think of meditation typically as, as being. Um, it's usually a very um, intentional, active thing for me. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. So there's never been essentially a time where, where you've the mind has quieted to the point where there is no sense of intention, no sense of uh, executive function. 
Oh, for sure. Yeah, that happens regularly. Um, and the way that I understand that, or and the way I understand what I'm doing in meditation is that I'm practicing particular ways of seeing that unbind or unfabricate my phenomenology. And so it does happen that when I invoke a particular way of seeing, like, for instance, ref- seeing that there is no uh, self operating in the constellation of my perception, that intention dissolves, um, you know, uh, the desire to do or achieve anything dissolves. But I don't think of that as a state of being so much as a state of unfabrication, a state of dissolution, Mm. a state of like less. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about that in the, what about the reverse of that when you experience um, a state of fullness? Mm -hmm. Does that, when does that arise or what is the utility of it? It's, these aren't the right questions, but what, um, sure. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. What's coming up is something like, uh, uh, I guess I'll, I'll just, I'll just speak in the way that I understand it and we can kind of unpack it if, if you want. Um, so, uh, there are, are ways of seeing that, or, or sometimes it is appropriate to constellate a self. It's appropriate to Mm. construct a self. Um, And, you know, essentially my my goal is to be fearless and without resistance in terms of moving up and down the spectrum of fabrication. Uh, It's really important for me not to get, uh, or or I have spent time uh, placing states of relatively less fabrication over and above states of more fabrication or particular kinds of fabrication or construction or, or selfing like no self over self. Uh, and so for me, they're just different expressions of life and I don't really, um, they, they, they both have unique affordances, but you know, I don't think one's necessarily more, uh, better than the other. That was beautiful. I love that. Uh, so I love the, the word fabrication, uh, Cause it almost implies agency, right? It almost implies mm-hmm. like yes. the sense of, of, of the, the, there's an organism here called Stuart that is fabricating this kind of yes. Stuart that is consistent, uh, over time. And, and, but that, in that, in, that is in no way actually happening. Uh, well, what? yeah, yeah. And I would say that, um, it is not that there is some, some organism called Daniel that's fabricating. It's, it's the, the way of seeing itself is fabricating. Right. And so, uh, mm. uh, and that, and, and the reason why I think, you know, as, as we reflect on it more that I'm a little bit resistant to the kind of being, um, narrative or, or way of looking is like, if we think that we've attained a state of being, then we typically stop looking. We stop trying to undermine the ways in which we're actually actively creating some kind of experience. And so then our search can stop. And I, I've met all kinds of folks who, you know, uh, rest at some plateau thinking that, oh, this is, I, I'm now being, I'm not doing anything. But actually there are very subtle ways in which they're still constructing their experience. And because they uh, have thought they've reached something, they, they, they give up that, that process of unbinding. Very interesting. What... Uh... What is the, why would you suggest that somebody unbinds their sense of self or their sense of almost their perception of reality? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Like I wouldn't necessarily suggest that people do it. Like I think, I think fundamentally it's like, if you, if you're into it, like if it calls to you, (laughs) then like go for it. And from, I mean, I, I can say that for me, it's been, uh, it's given me a kind of resource and peace amongst in, in, in my life that is just like, I, I regularly experience 
tremendous amounts of gratitude for the me that has dedicated so much of <laughs> my life to to this practice because it, it's just such a refuge, you know, it's such a refuge. And it's, and it's fascinating to me personally because of how I'm wired. Like it's fascinating just sort of like exploring how this thing we call subjectivity or experience kind of works, like how it gets built, how it gets unbuilt. Uh, and, and all the kind of cool tricks you can do too. Like you can learn to sit on your butt and experience states of pleasure and well-being that are like just off the charts. Like you yeah. can't pay just, for it, and, right? It's like you can't, yeah. yeah. That are like almost unconditioned that, just, just in that. a sense. Like, well, yeah, well, yeah, totally, yeah. And so there's a few different ways. So there's... This, I, w- I would love to talk about unconditioned. How can you, because you just talked about sitting on your butt and learning all, all those are conditions, but then they lead to an unconditioned state of joy. So I want to talk about the relationship between conditions, conditioning and, un- and unconditioned states. But then I also want to talk about, you said something earlier about resistance uh, and, and I've been dealing with a lot of resistance recently. Hmm. And that also ties into together with another question, another path we can go to, which is trauma and how you guys work with trauma at uh, Monastic hmm. Academy and um, and that, that for, for me, the particular thing is the trauma of early ch- childhood trauma, which is, yeah. and a lot of people, when I say that word, they mean like, they think that of, and I believe that they think they mean, they, that I'm saying, um, uh, you, you know, emotional trauma, but it also mm. can be physical because it can be, um, our, our, we can have physical experiences of pain and discomfort that in childhood that warp our neurological factors. Mm. Um, so but the the resistance come there's so much resistance there because you res, as a child there's nothing you can do besides resist that experience um uh so yeah those three pathways what what's most interesting to you hmm yeah i i i'm i don't know that i how much like interesting things i have to say about the condition and the unconditioned but i'm 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 most curious about what is what's there for you like what what your curiosity is around that around about that the unconditioned the condition yeah, yeah. That, so yeah the 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 person is who's showing me a lot of this stuff is uh he talks a lot about the unconditioned mind um huh. and huh. and and conditioning and we as organisms that have these conditional like a large part of the self is constructed out of conditioning so out of time out of like i am you know a young child and i've i i am conditioned in order to think a certain way i'm conditioned mm-hmm. by by my genes i'm conditioned yeah, by all yeah. these different things yeah but all of that rests on this unconditioned spot of this this or the substrate the unconditioned substrate which which um uh is just there all the time and that's the awareness mm-hmm. of of everything rising um itself and so he talks a lot about the unconditioned mind but he also says that you you can't get there because that would be a a condition you place Mm. on the unconditioned mind Mm. where it's and so Mm. um Mm. it's a Mm. paradox that i i have trouble getting to yeah well maybe we can kind of make a little bridge to the the trauma discussion too so what what that brings up for me is um uh one of the the methods that I use for, for working with like, you know, the kind of like young stuck parts of my psyche is a system called internal family systems. And in that typically the, the, the idea of it is that you can kind of think of our psyche as being made up of parts, each of which have their own kind of set of desires and a sort of agency really. And so like you can, if you feel, um, like sad out of proportion to your experience, you might think like, what, what is this part? What does it want? What is it going after? And sort of like almost treat it as if it is actually like a young child, you know, and it's, and often you'll find that they're like seeking compassion or something like that. But in order to, in order to uh, do that move, you first have to establish yourself in what this system calls the self with a capital S, which is a kind of like, uh, 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 you know, we might say like a part of yourself that is always calm, connected, compassionate, and kind of clear. And if that's not available, then you have to kind of work to to unblend yourself from whatever's arising in your experience. But once you have that clear differentiation, you can work with those traumatized parts of yourself in a way that can kind of bring them back 
uh, update them and resolve whatever their holdings are. And so I, I, that's that's certainly my experience too, is that you kind of need to be connected with this well, less conditioned or, or part of yourself that's free in order to work with those stuck, uh, difficult places. Mm. Uh. There is a point there that I want to get to, which is... Nope, I lost it. Uh, so let's go to this piece of resistance. How have you felt a lot of resistance in your life, or is that something that you haven't mm. felt that much? Oh yeah, this is a great. This is a good question. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I really resonated with you when you said that you've been feeling a lot of resistance lately. I've been I've been feeling a lot of resistance lately too, um, and I think. It's an, it, it, so that question, have I felt a lot of resistance in my life? It's like, I think I have ignored a lot of resistance in my life. <laughs> I think I've like and distracted. What's that? Yeah. You, uh, it's almost like for me, it's the resistance was always there, but I was, it, I felt it was part of me, part of that self. But now I'm, it feels like for me, as I unlock more deeper stuff i find new um new uh springs of resistance uh and that if if i can just witness them as opposed to get wrapped up in them then they'd leave but it's that resistance state that like the the, the battling of, of phenomena like the uncomfortable mm. phenomena negative emotions and like i'm, I'm going yeah. to stop it i'm going to i'm going yeah. to like like you know like this is not acceptable that yes. thing yes yeah yeah yeah, totally. And I, I mean, I spent most of my life just distracting myself from resistance or like kind of uh, yeah. taking taking uh, some way around the resistance. So I'd never actually have to experience it. And, um, you know, it's, it's becoming clearer and clearer to me now, uh, whether or not I always live in accordance with this, but that resistance like conflict in relationships is a, is a kind of doorway to a deeper understanding, right? Like resistance is where evolution is like that tension is the stuff of greater integrity. Like if you, if you, if you go, if you meet it uh, in the right way, or if you meet it fully, uh, that's where, that's where the, the, the good stuff is. And so I, I feel, I feel sad that I spent so much of my life kind of running from it. It couldn't have been otherwise, I guess, at this point. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's 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 a it's a. I've 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 been having a big paradigm shift around that over the I guess over the past ten years since I started meditating, but it's it seems like as you say it goes deeper and deeper and deeper. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, that's the that's the point that I wanted. Well, there's one of the points is that you mentioned that people get to a plateau. Mm -hmm. um, it's so interesting because it. I've, I worked with my, I did this meditation retreat kind of journey for about three to four years. I never worked one-on-one -on -one with a person throughout that time. So mm. it was all broadcasted to me without mm. any sort of sense of like, uh, mm. um, any sort of sense of like my, my having feedback from someone who's kind of been there before, uh, specific to my situation. And, uh, then I ran into a lot of problems because of that. And, uh, and then I started, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm in this abyss. I've got to, work myself well myself out of it how do i do that i'm going to work with a one-on-one -on -one teacher so i'm going to try to find somebody who's who has a lot of experience in meditation so i found somebody and on our first uh our first meeting he drops the word uh enlightened and says that he's enlightened mm. um and so i'm like oh how do, how do i how do i verify that because i like mm. he, i'm i'm paying him money but at the same time he just told me that he's enlightened so so like did he just do that because he's, I'm paying him money or, or mm. like what, what's the, what's the relationship there? So it kind of, and then I worked with him for a long time uh, and he had a lot of interesting things to say, important things that have still have an effect on my life and are still valuable. Uh, I stopped working with him because of that, of that fundamental agency uh, issue that he was helping me and asking me for money and claiming, mm. claiming something uh, that I thought mm. would, would be mystical or that is, that is beyond, um, kind of something you should, should claim in that mm. relationship. Uh, mm. and so it, 
it seems to me that he had reached a plateau and that that even that word mm. i am enlightened i attained enlightenment is mm. like i don't need to do anything else or it mm. but then it like, gets into the discussion of like what is the i what what is you know part of us <laughs> what everybody says is like part of us is already enlightened so like um i would i don't have a specific question here but i'd be curious to if you have any reflections on what i just said yeah sure i mean so there's a the head teacher here at the monastery, his name is Soryu Foral. And one of the things he says most often about the monastery is, you know, there's two things we do here. We get stuff done and we let stuff go. Mm. What do we get done? We get good things done. What do we let go? Our insights, right? Our insights. And there's something that, when I first got here was highly triggering (laughs) about, about that uh, idea because at the time I was very attached to what I thought I had attained. And for me, you know, it was only in working with a teacher because I was similar, I think to you where I was kind of like an autodidact uh, practitioner Mm. for most of my practicing life. Uh, It was only when I met Soryu and started meeting with him one-on-one that uh, I had somebody who, with the with the position and the authority to rip that away from me, which at the time was very painful, um, and I resisted it a lot. But I think a part of me knew that it was for the best, and now I'm I'm so grateful because uh, it, it's the case that whatever identity or whatever box, no matter how enlightened it might be, that we construct for ourselves, it's still limiting. And, uh, yeah, I think it's super easy, especially, you know, when capitalism mixes with spirituality to, to create these kinds of identities. Uh, and then, you know, there you go. You Which trapped. is actually what I talked to, Vinay, what I talked to Vinay Gupta about was, mm. uh, because now what's happening in Silicon Valley is that what I believe is happening in Silicon Valley and, and this rise of, uh, techno capitalism i guess is the best word to describe it hmm. is um is that for a long time the 1970s 1980s 1990s these guys were the losers in the social dynamic they were mm. the nerds <laughs> and they yeah. and now they've won because and everybody is looking to them for innovation for and they've got large capital they've got influence uh and and for a large part of that, I mean, I, I suspect that a huge part of the reason why Silicon Valley is successful is because it was also part of the same geographical region as the New Age hippie movement. Mm. Um, and that uh, that a lot of the founders have had meditation practices for a long time a lot, and have relied on that for a long time, but didn't talk about it. Uh, and now they're now they're starting to talk about it. Uh, and people are getting the uh, impression that meditation is a, the best productivity hack ever uh, and then it's, it's going to make us all so productive and and going to yeah. solve all our problems and uh, and all we need to do is just sit quietly and pay attention to mm-hmm. our breath um and that and that and so i talked to big Gupta about like because i've i you know i what i did that like that's what i thought and, and the reason i know it is because i i that was what i what i came to the conclusion and then that was ripped apart by lots mm-hmm. of trauma and struggle and, and mm-hmm. resistance and all this different mm-hmm. stuff that we're talking about. And then I talked to Benet Gupta about it. And, and, and it's so interesting because in San Francisco, we have kind of like, uh, we have high, high inequality, but mm. where there is no middle, middle ground, you, you either have extremely w- wealthy people um, who live just in this utopia of, of, mm. of whatever you want, anytime, uh, it's all available to you as long as you have that money. Uh, and then, and also the social capital. Uh, and then you have the system was set up by hippies who bought houses in San Francisco, uh, and then became not hippies because they had property. Uh, and then, uh, I don't mean, I, I'm making a lot of general generalizations here, but, uh, they, they bought property and now they, but they've uh, created a lot of housing for lower income people, but it's at the exact opposite end of the spectrum. And also mm-hmm. that you have the nice weather and everything like that. So it draws a lot of homeless people who are in like 
intense mental health challenges, issues, and also they are completely um, like the the tech elite hate them with such mm. a passion uh, and mm. make it clear every day. Like every everyone has so much anger and angst towards these people who are on the street mm. uh, doing drugs, uh, like defecating, urinating, uh, mm. and it's just this. The only place that I've ever seen anything remotely like it is is in India, um, and 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 it's it's which is another interesting thing. Um, so it's, it's, and then, and then you've got these people who are now practicing this, this technique, which for material power, for productivity, for, uh, for things that are, and, and they think they've rediscovered the wheel. Um, uh, but th this has actually been something that has been done throughout history. Like in India in the ninth century, Kings would hire, um, monastics would hire uh black sorcerers w in order to mm. cast s spells and use the same sort of techniques that meditation leads to that are further down the path than just this simple shamatha this uh breathing technique um and they would use that in order to get material power over over the competing kingdom so it's like mm. uh mm. this has all been done before and it's like mm. and and there's a lot of pitfalls and it seems as if Silicon Valley is running headfirst into a lot of them. And there's going to be a lot of cults that come out of it. There's going to be a lot of mm -hmm. uh, trauma that's going to be created out of it. And, and yeah, I'd be curious for you being in, in Vermont separated from this, but still connected to the internet, still connected to this thing that was created by this, this group, how much do you, are you connected to it in a way in this techno capitalism? Mm -hmm. Like what's your thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, in a lot of ways I am, uh, you know, we actually have two branches of the monastery and one of them is in San Francisco, Oakland. Um, mm. and so we are in various ways connected to this kind of movement. I've been, uh, a part of it for a long time. I used to work for a company called Buddhist Geeks, which was yeah. really an exploration of <clears throat> technology and contemplative practice. And so uh, I've been paying attention to this movement since the very beginning. And, and I, you know, I, it's, it's still open for me. Like on the one hand, there's a part of me that thinks that if you sort of unbundle and modularize these techniques, like just give somebody a breath practice and contextualize it by saying, hey, this is going to make you better at productivity, that you can kind of pervert these teachings that are uh, supposed to be about human liberation and living a, a truly good and beneficial life, a life of service, and turn it into something that can actually make you better at perhaps destroying the planet. Um, and we, we know that's the case because, you know, uh, they had... That's, that's a classic thing they did in Japan to help people kill with less moral uh, weight associated with the act of killing, you know, whether it's kamikaze pilots or samurais. And so th there's a way that you can, you can do that, right? That seems like it's possible to use the techniques that way. There's also a part of me that wonders, like, if it's going to be a little bit like a Trojan horse, uh, you know, that, that you, you, you give, you give mindfulness to your employees and then they discover their embodied moral intelligence even though all you wanted was for them to be a bit more focused mm -hmm. on their work uh, and so i think it's, it's very much an open question for me um i think pedagogically I, I would i would appreciate it if we as quickly as possible uh made it the case that we taught this stuff in a more integrated way you know that that included a sense of ethics that included a sense of responsibility to the to the world in various ways, but yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, it's it's still really open for me. I, I'm I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, uh, I I hope it's the latter. I hope that there's like an irrepressible kind of moral essence that is discovered if you do this practice, regardless of how it's contextualized. But um, I don't know. Yeah. That's really interesting. And I wonder, because in, in just reflecting on what I just said, it seems like I've leaned more towards uh, not being an open question for me um, and that there is this, but I, I but then re reflecting on what you just said is really interesting because I don't know. There, I don't know what's going to happen. So 
I do see signs of this happening, mm -hmm. but that could be reflect in, ref, a reflection of my own um, path through it and essentially seeing how ridiculous I was being trying to cover up all this resistance with just doing meditation uh, techniques over and over again. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and I think there's like, there is a kind of element of there being a sort of like funnel, right? Like a mindfulness funnel, just like a marketing funnel where, you know, maybe people first get into it for productivity, but then through the practice, they realized how much more possibility there is. And then they get into deeper expressions of the training. And, you know, I meet, I meet people all the time that come to the monastery who, you know, started meditating three years ago with Headspace. And then step by step, they got to the point where they're really committing their life to, uh, to mm -hmm. something much deeper, much more beautiful. And, and, um, maybe, maybe that's how it's going to go. You know, we can't, uh, we can't assume that people are going to be, be further along than they, they are for than they're ready for. Maybe we just have to meet people where they are. Uh, mm. but yeah, I don't know. It, it really like this, this inquiry is, it has been up for me recently. And it really depends on the day. Like if you talk to me tomorrow, I might be much more pessimistic. And so, so I, I don't want to, I, yeah, I definitely don't feel like this is a closed question or anywhere near being closed for me. And this is so interesting because how, In this world, we it is a uh, in the Western world, maybe even in the Eastern world. Now it's uh, we all have to like know something. We have to be an expert, and like we it, this goes into the capitalism thing, I guess again, because it's like we all have to find our unique competitive advantage and and <laughs> become this 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 uh, this um, individual who's unique and who has powers and skills and everything like that. Uh, and then there's a pair paradox there as well, because the more that I find myself in unknowing and being more comfortable with not knowing and not having the skills, not being an expert, not being all these things, uh, the more expertise I almost get. It feels like that. I like, mm. so it feels like I'm more capable in capitalist society based on my ability to not know something, but then mm. I've got to give this illusion that I do mm. know something that I do know mm. all this different stuff. And, and so, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd be curious what your thoughts are on, uh, how you navigate the world of, of capitalism. You already kind of alluded to it earlier in this fabrication sense, but uh, what, how do you deal with this? Yeah, man, it's a, that's a big question. I, I, <laughs> I mean, what, what comes up a little bit is like my, my, my experience with the podcast. So like this podcast emerge is not, it's not like, a big podcast. You don't have that many listeners, but it's, it's quite influential within a certain weird subculture now. And, uh, a lot of the folks that listen to it end up coming to the monastery. Uh, the, the, the podcast mm. is sponsored by the monastery now. Mm. Uh, so it's one of our major kind of marketing channels. And, you know, I cover all these really big kind of interesting, complex, exciting topics like around collapse and decentralized governance and like net new wave philosophy and, and things like that. And people come and they meet me or they, or they reach out online and I can tell that they expect me to understand this stuff because I've had conversations about it that I'm interested in it. And I'm like, no, you <laughs> I'm having conversations because I don't understand it. Right. I don't understand this stuff. I don't know what's going on. I am not an expert. I, I, I think the only thing that maybe I have going on for me is that I, I know that I don't know well enough that I can sit in that with other people for periods of time and have a conversation around it. And then maybe it's worth listening to, but like, uh, I, I, I am very well aware of how inadequate I am to the times and, you know, yeah, I could, and I have in the past kind of put on this veneer of expertise in order to sell myself in the world we live in. But part of the reason I moved to the monastery is, is so that I didn't have to participate in that game. Mm. Like that game, mm. uh, maybe there's a way to do it without committing violence upon your soul, but I haven't found mm. it yet. Boom. Whoa, that's crazy. Committing violence against your soul. Um, Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Uh, for me, 
I'm getting to the stage where I love it, where I love, I love, I love being, I love being in that, in that, uh, in, in this kind of capitalist, uh, uh, creation of interesting products and services. Uh, uh, so I'm, it's funny cause I'm in my own, that dichotomy that I was talking about becoming and being, I've gone from being over the last five years to, to, to more becoming and back, getting back into that kind of comfortness of becoming. Um, and I love it. Uh, but then, then thinking about the last five years as well, and considering that I also know that there's a lot of pitfalls to, I don't actually know what I'm talking about here. Abandoning. I often am kind of paranoid about doing things that will come back to bite me in the ass. Um, and, and part of this, so many people, not only in the, in the, in the technology space, but also in, in this, this, the consciousness for lack of a better word space as well, you know, scandals, uh, all, all these different things. Uh, and it's, and it's, and uh, what I wonder is there, like you said, like is there a way to do it without committing your violence to your own soul or to the to other people around it? Is organization is there fun, something fundamentally um, uh, violent about human society, organization, communication, um, community? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, what do you think? Yeah, well, I, I want to definitely like unpack a little bit and add some nuance to the, the violence against our soul because I can imagine people. Uh, well, I, I'll just want to unpack it a little bit. And what was, what's in my mind now is like, it's not, I think American culture uh, puts a lot of emphasis on looking at this kind of thing from the perspective of the individual. And mm. there are definitely better and worse ways to relate to this situation from the perspective of the individual. Like, uh, there are people who are, you know, um, doing work in at Monsanto to genetically uh, to patent genetically modified crops that are causing Indian farmers to suicide, right? To commit suicide, and mm-hmm. it's like, you know, there's some there's some mental trickery you have to do to become the kind of person who's willing to do that without compunction. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And then there are people who are doing really impressive, beautiful work in the world that's really like probably, you know, on the whole, doing more good than harm. But all of those people are embedded in a system which, from my view, is inherently corrupt, is inherently problematic. Uh, and, and I don't know if you're familiar with the work of, have you heard of somebody named Daniel Schmachtenberger? No. Okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of put his formulation on the table. It's essentially that um, uh, if we think of our current economic system as a win-lose game dynamic, right? I win. I I get market share at the expense of your market share. I take Mm -hmm. these trees and turn them into boards for houses. You can't have them. Uh, When you add exponential technology to win-lose game Mm -hmm. dynamics, it becomes Mm -hmm. inherently self-terminating. When you take it to the level of a civilization, that means that unless we fundamentally restructure the operating system of our civilization, it's headed towards collapse. And you can say it even simpler, you know, an infinite growth economic system on a finite playing field, it like logically at a certain point, something has to give. And so if you're in any way participating in that, like there, there, like, you know, there's only so much optionality. There's only so much, uh, working on yourself, changing your relationship to it, that's going to make a difference because the system itself has a trajectory that you as a single part in it can't really affect. And so like, you just have to be honest about the limitations of our individual power when it comes to these kinds of situations that we find ourselves in. And, and, uh, you know, that's not to make, to make like an enemy or, uh, uh, you know, um, to, to make it bad to participate in this sort of world. It's just to, to be honest about it. Like you can't, you, in my world, I can't be in full integrity if I'm participating in this economy. 
I can get pretty close. I can get be, be more in integrity and like, yeah, do that. But like, let's, let's call a spade a spade. Interesting. And so the, essentially the monastic Academy is trying to separate it. Is the monastic Academy trying to separate itself from the economy? Well, even here, right? from like, the system. yeah, I mean, even here, right? Like, um, it's, it's a, it's a spectrum. Like we're still embedded mm-hmm. in this system. Now this system here, yeah. the monastery is, uh, so the way I think of it, it's like when I was living in Boulder where I lived before I came here, uh, I had to exert a lot of energy and intention and agency in order to live in integrity, right? Or as much integrity as I could muster given what we just talked about. Here at the monastery, mm-hmm. I just wake up. I just wake up and I'm mm-hmm. already living in more integrity than I was in Boulder, mm-hmm. right? Um, but because, of course, um, you know, oh yeah, go, mm-hmm. go ahead. Uh, so, uh, and is that because the monastic academy is separated from maybe like the plastic use, the food, mm-hmm. the food sources, the, 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 uh, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in technology itself that, that, yep. uh, the whole, I mean, that's the, the, it's just so hard for me to envision extracting myself from this system yeah. because it is so pervasive. Yeah. Yeah. And so and does monastic, yeah, go for it. Uh, yeah. So, so, you know, we, we, it's in a sense, like, I guess one way to think of it is like when I lived in Boulder, I had to do all the work to um, be in integrity. Here, all of us are working. All of us are keeping an eye out. Like, how how could we change the way we buy food? How could we change the way that we use power, like electricity or whatever, uh, so that we're more in integrity with the fundamental philosophy of this organization? And so that that mm. that that burden is distributed, and you know because we're an organization, because we have like institutional knowledge, it's also like builds up over time. And we also have more power to mm-hmm. kind of define uh, ourselves and create the kinds of conditions that we want. Whereas, you know, when I was living in Boulder, I had to constantly fight against, felt like to me, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the momentum, the inertia of the world around yep. me uh, to protect mm-hmm. myself and to kind of try to keep, keep myself from, from, as you say, like do it, doing harm. So this is gets into a really interesting point, and it, it, it I'm sure you have something interesting to say, or at least more questions. Uh, I'm I'm going to offer what because I've come to the, a similar conclusion, not to the same conclusion uh, that that we are headed for collapse, or m- maybe even collapse is not the word that I would use, but essentially like we're headed for a uh, a switch in time where where we might have even passed it, which which is essentially the things that we thought were principles were not principles. Uh, they were rules, uh, that, and, and that the, we are going to come face to face with essentially a new way of evolution or a new way of human organization, uh, that would have seemed impossible previously. And I see a fundamental role of technology playing an important, being a important component of that. And that, for me, the only way out is, is through, and, and the only way through is with technology coupled with human ethics. Hmm. Uh, and, and I, I, it's interesting cause you just gave me a new insight, which is that human organization also is important in that ethical kind of human or it's, that seems related to that ethical piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so I am, I am, I am, optimistic i'm optimistic of technology's role as long as we can start from this place that we are in a system that is destructive and violent and uh and and uh it it, if left up to its own devices which are human devices um uh if we don't start from that place we won't really make any change so we have to we have to accept it like you talk about and like what vinay talked about yeah um and but then I want to figure out what we can do in this in this in this scalable technology way to help support a shift that saves people's lives, saves people's uh, well-being. And I believe that that technology shift should be aimed in the direction of spiritual liberation for each individual. Mm. But I don't 
I don't, mm. I'm not, I'm not sure on that point. I don't know how that looks like. I don't even know if I should be promoting spiritual liberation because mm. it's not a, it's not a comfortable, mm. uh, it's not <laughs> comfortable to the, to the, it's not, it has not been a comfortable uh, experience for me. And I'm not saying that I'm spiritually liberated, but, but the, mm. uh, it seems to be where I'm headed because I want to be out of pain. Um, uh, mm. uh, knowing that I'm not going to be out of pain, but out of suffering at least. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 I'd love to hear what your thoughts on that are. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I suppose I'll, I'll just put it kind of like, uh, one of my, one of my beliefs, which I, you know, I, I guess I hold loosely if I were to encounter a good argument against it is that the proper objective of human civilization ought to be for the flourishing well-being, development, education, uh, sophistication of humans and, and indeed all, all beings within that. And, mm. and there, there's, uh, like we said, there's a way in which, um, existing in a win-lose game makes it very difficult to actually achieve that objective. Uh, uh, but if, if we consider that like that is the goal now is to sort mm. of shift any and all systems we can get in traction with so that they mm. support this overall goal of creating more flourishing, creating more well-being, complexity, uh, furthering human potential, then all cards are on the table as to how to achieve that. I, I think um, some people are called to uh, working directly with the already existing levers of power through government. Uh, others are creating distributed autonomous organizations or other crypto projects to allow us to do that in a parallel way. Some people, you know, I'm, I'm contributing my life to a, an organization whose goal is to create wise human beings, you know, and, and I think that's the that's the trajectory and and however we want to get there i i don't i don't pretend to know the bridge to that world but it's probably like yeah every resource we can get our hands on to help facilitate that like let's let's fucking do it because time yeah. is of the essence yeah interesting have you come across anybody who is talking about a fundamental shift in consciousness that is that is more towards almost a uh digital embodiment and if you don't if that doesn't make sense please mm. let me know digital embodiment. Part. yeah that doesn't uh that doesn't make sense to me it has some resonances but i'm not sure what you mean so what i see is essentially that a couple of years ago i heard about um mark zuckerberg was talking about space him and this in investor in, in facebook yuri i forget his name we're talking about a way that we can um spread uh, human species onto other planets. And one of them talked about uh, bringing, basically miniaturizing consciousness and putting it on um, mm -hmm. on hard disks, if, yeah. if that is, you know, actually capable, possible. Uh, and so to me, seeing where technologies like virtual reality are going, which are not there yet, but are, are going there um, and, and which are, that are sent that, and then also my experiences in virtual reality re recently playing two games that I had an embodied experience mm. that was mediated through technology, through my, through a, a illusion, which is funny because the, the virtual reality is an illusion, but then also my eyes portraying the virtual reality <laughs> are also an illusion that my brain. Yeah. So it's like, so, it's like, so <laughs> which is really interesting. So it's like the, this, this technology is now I felt embodied in a different place, in a different physical place, because the virtual reality had played a trick on my mind. Mm. Um, and so thinking about that, thinking about the collapse of the physical environment that we're facing, unless we can figure mm. a set, kind of a last card that we can play, makes me think that this next transition is going to be one that is going to miniaturize consciousness and, and somehow change the physical environment where we're, or change the virtual mm. environment as the physical environment starts to collapse. Hmm, kind of like ma matrix style. Pretty much. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Except I mean, hopefully like more, more beneficent, more chill. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that, that's, that's this, that's this whole piece of ethics. Essentially. It's like we create, we already create our own, in some ways we create our own perception of reality. Uh, so that will probably continue in the same, in a similar way in this, in this virtual space with less limits. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, yeah, I have I have no idea. This is uh, 
I'll first I'll say like this, this, I don't know, you know, um, I, I don't know enough. I know enough to know that I don't know. Um, but I will say from mm. my perspective, based on what I do know, I, I hope that isn't what happens. I hope there's so much about the natural world and the world as it is right now that we just don't understand. Like yeah. I, I can't imagine us digitizing ourselves in a way that preserves the mystery and the wonder of the world mm. and to sacrifice that for survival because we weren't willing to get our shit together well enough to coordinate ourselves so that we didn't destroy the physical planet would feel like a great tragedy. But, you know, mm. um, I don't know. And that's, I mean, and that's, and, and that's the other, cause I see that, that is a scenario. And then the other scenario I see is this essentially I've heard a few uh, strains of it on this podcast, which is that, uh, well, conscious capitalism, uh, circular capitalism, and then biomimicry. So using mm. kind of finding the fundamental principles of, of nature and then using technology to mimic those, um, is, is pretty exciting. Uh, and, and, but yeah, I don't, um, I, so that, yeah, those are the two pathways I see. And as, as, as you said, I, I don't know, I don't know where it's going. I'm, I'm hopeful that I will continue to go in long walks in nature for the next mm -hmm. hundred years. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I think that one of the future I would, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, the, the second future of like regenerative capitalism and circular economies like that feels much more, uh, uh, hopeful and interesting to me. And I think it, it plugs nicely into this. Um, and it sounds like you have a kind of similar perspective where if our objective, our shared objective is human flourishing, uh, human well-being, that it does seem to be the case that um, uh, a sufficiently sophisticated human organism wants to participate in ethical organizations, right? So mm. like if you become wise enough, clear enough, you want to, you know, be a part of an organization that isn't externalizing all of its costs. Mm -hmm. And I think that makes me hopeful, right? If, if that correlation is actually present, and I really do think it is, then if we can provide for the development of, of humans, then there, there's reason to suspect that they'll just naturally start putting their efforts towards more ethical ends. And if we then have organizational structures to capture that and actualize that, because right now there isn't, there's a lot of people who desperately want to be live lives of benefit who just don't have an outlet for that. Um, I think, I think that that's, there's, that, yeah. That's super exciting. I, that's something that I would, I would be very excited in partaking in uh, the kind of, how does that happen though? Yeah. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I think, I think that I get hopeful when I hear about some of the experiments that are happening with distributed autonomous organizations. I also get hopeful when I, when I hear about successful experiments with like teal or distributed organizational structures, places like in spiral, um, where they really have found a way to let people participate in the organization with autonomy and a collective responsibility to ethics. Um, mm. they, I, you know, so that we have these two things, right? We have uh, usually pretty small scale, functional, uh, distributed organizations. And then we have this possible, this technology that would have possibly allow that to scale. And I mm. don't know if they will ever be able to find like the right kind of fit such that it becomes accessible and meaningful, but I, I'm hopeful that that will happen. And I'm hopeful, I mean, the, the pressure is certainly on, so maybe that will be the right environment for, for that innovation. Hmm. So yeah, it's, uh, it seems like a good, good time to wrap up. I really appreciate you coming on the show and uh, I'd, I'd love it if you could give my listeners more information on how they can interact with you, find, find more about the podcast, find out more about monastic Academy. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I appreciate the conversation. These were, uh, I didn't, I, I had no idea what we were going to talk about. And um, th th this was fun because it's like stuff that I, I, I don't, that, that isn't something that I talk about a lot. And so it was a very good exercise mm -hmm. in my mind. I, I'm hoping that, 
you know, uh, I, just as a blanket statement about all the statements that I said, like I'm a, I'm in an open inquiry, right? Like I, I very much do not want to, uh, uh, but my sense is that it's when we leave uncertainty and not knowing that we shut down, uh, our kind of spontaneous inquiry into the world. And so, uh, you know, if you're listening to this and you want to correct me, I invite that very much. Uh, or if you want to show me some new evidence. But if you want to find me on the internet, uh, I'm at D Thorson on Twitter. Uh, you can check out the Monastic Academy at uh, monasticacademy.com. And then uh, my podcast lives uh, at emerge. or what is emerging.com slash podcast. Hmm. That's a great name. Um, and that's, I feel like that's, maybe I should start saying that more often about like that that uh because i we talked before the show about how that's that's the goal is that like i i'm asking you questions and i'm asking both of us at the same time and all of my listeners at the same time so um so this Mm. is yeah this is this this is uh this is this whole show that i'm doing is a is essentially an open inquiry that uh makes it difficult to market sometimes uh, yeah. because it goes all over the place but uh uh but uh, uh hopefully it is a value um, no it was it was uh, awesome thank you so like, much yeah 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 i feel like my brain just got uh went for a run it was fun <laughs> totally <laughs> very cool excited uh yeah uh thank you so much and it's been an absolute pleasure yeah thank you Stuart. i hope you enjoyed this episode with me and daniel If you did, please find us on iTunes by searching for Crazy Wisdom or on any of the other platforms, Spotify, Stitcher, anything you're currently listening to to podcasts on. And also find find me on Twitter at Stuart Alsop, III. I'm running some breathwork sessions, um, developing a curriculum to teach people more about how they can breathe uh, in an effective way. And I'd love for you to join. So just find me on Twitter at Stuart Alsop, III, and I'll be including more information about that. Have a great day.